Transmitting from the lovely little city of Taylor, Texas, you are listening to Plow and Hose, a show dedicated to the joys and challenges of organic backyard gardening in Central Texas. I am your host, Julie Rydell. Welcome to the show. Hello there, plant people and gardening friends. Thank you for joining me today. It's just been a wonderful spring weekend here in little Taylor, Texas, and I am just so happy and pleased with everything coming back to life after what seemed to be a long and dark and uh, just bleh, sad winter. (laughs) Right now, though, we are going through a short-lived but kind of gross time of year it's tree pollen season and the oak trees right now are gone bonkers they are pumping out a disgusting amount of yellow green pollen all over the place and it's just everywhere i actually heard on the news the other day that oak pollen levels are the highest they've been like in three years in central texas So if you've had a runny nose or itchy eyes, a headache, it's the pollen. And I'm sorry, allergies just totally suck. I can't, uh, I'll be glad when we kind of cycle through that. You know, between the lack of rain and the dry winds we've been having, there's just a crazy amount of pollen right now. And luckily, um, the oak tassels are starting to drop So that's good. The oak tassels, um, which are also called catkins, are the stringy green male flowers um, that are on the trees. And they drop and they turn brown after they release the pollen. They look like dead worms. Dried, crusty dead worms. That's what they look like to me. Oak trees are wind pollinated, and if no pollination occurs, the female flowers will develop into acorns. Wind pollination is a little sketchy. It's much more random than insect pollination. So wind pollinated plants like oak trees have to produce tons and tons of pollen in an effort to create fruits and seeds. And acorns, of course, are oak tree seeds. Fortunately for us, oak pollen season usually peaks in the first two weeks of April. So here we are, early April. And the oak pollen usually subsides by the end of the month. And I was thinking about getting my car washed again, but I'm thinking I'm just might as well just wait another week if I can stand it. You know, because if we're lucky, and we could get lucky, the pecans will just go ahead and do their thing and release pollen um, soon. And we can just be done with all this pollen, hopefully, maybe by the mid to late April. That'd be pretty cool. In better news, though, in my garden, it's starting to look really, really good out there. My sugar snap peas are starting to climb the trellis and they're probably close to two feet tall now and they're going to be blooming soon. 
We always look forward to fresh green sugar snap peas each spring. Um, fresh peas are just the best. They're great. Also, the potatoes that I planted right around Valentine's Day, they are probably a foot tall right now. They look just beautiful. They're green and they're lush. And last weekend, I added about four or five inches of soil to uh, cover the stems. Potatoes send out tubers along their stems. So if you keep adding soil as they grow, you can actually increase your harvest. Potatoes will let you know when they're ready to dig up. They're going to bloom and then the upper parts of the plant will start to collapse and turn yellow. So when they start to fall over, you know, it's about time to get out there and dig up your potatoes. Don't, you know, don't leave them in the ground once the plants start to die because they will rot underground and rotten potatoes are not only dis disappointing, they also smell super disgusting. So when they start to collapse in a few weeks, get out there and dig them up. Speaking of potatoes, in April, we can plant sweet potatoes. In Texas, we can grow two types of potatoes. We can grow sweet potatoes and we can grow Irish potatoes. They both put out tubers, but the tubers form on different parts of the plants. Tubers are basically food storage formations. Their job is to store up nutrients for the next growing season. Both sweet potatoes and Irish potatoes are nutritious and very delicious, but they are two completely different types of plants. Sweet potatoes are a warm season crop. Sweet potatoes form tubers on their roots and Irish potatoes are a cool season crop and they form tubers on their stems. Irish potatoes are finishing up their growing season right now, so we can't plant them now, but we can uh, plant Irish potatoes again in August so that we can have a nice fall harvest. Sweet potatoes are more tropical and they love the warm, hot weather. The leaves of sweet potatoes are also edible. Unlike Irish potatoes, you can't eat their leaves, but you can eat sweet potato leaves. Now, sweet potatoes aren't grown from a seed potato or a potato cutting like um, Irish potatoes. They are grown from slips. A slip is just a rooted sprout from a mature sweet potato. So if you've ever forgotten about a sweet potato in your kitchen um, and they've, they sprout like shoots and leaves, those are slips and you can use those for planting. You can also order slips online, but you know, try calling around some of the local independent nurseries and find out when they expect their slips to come in. They are only available for a short time, so if you want to get them from your favorite nursery, call and find out when they expect to have them in. If you are patient, you can try to grow your own slips. It, it will take four to eight weeks if you start them now, we have enough time to grow some slips before the end of the sweet potato planting window. Um, sweet potatoes, um, they can be planted April through the end of June for our part of cent Central Texas. There are a couple of ways to intentionally grow slips. You can start them in water, which is probably the more traditional way, or you could also start them in soil. 
The water method involves taking a sweet potato and just turning it vertically and sticking some toothpicks in the sides and then submerging or suspending the potato and submerging um, one end of the potato into a jar of water. The submerged section will form roots and the top portion will develop leaves and stems. And it's gonna take about six to eight weeks for the slips to form. The soil method can shave a couple of weeks off of your growing time. Just take a tray like a disposable co container and poke some drainage holes in the bottom. You could use like a foil pan or like one of those cl um, plastic clamshell boxes that you can get like berries or lettuce in from the grocery store. All you gotta do is just add some seed starting mix or other lightweight soil. Um, moisten it with a little bit of water and then nestle your sweet potatoes horizontally into the tray. In four to six weeks, you're going to have some nice green slips form. For both methods of starting slips, you want to keep them warm and give them plenty of light. When your sprouts are about five to six inches tall, you can just gently remove them from the sweet potato, take those sprouts, and then you can root them in a jar of water. They should root pretty quickly in just a few days, and then you can plant your slips out in your garden. Sweet potatoes like loose, slightly acidic soil, which is kind of a problem if you want to plant them directly in the ground. Here in Taylor, we have that beautiful black clay soil that is pretty heavy, and it's also alkaline. So if you want to grow in the ground, you're going to need to amend your soil with lots and lots of compost. But you can always grow your sweet potatoes in a raised bed, and that, that's what I do. Sweet potato plants have lovely leaves and like a really nice vine. They aren't quite as showy as the lime green or the black ornamental sweet potato vines that are sold as bedding plants and you know, also in hanging baskets, but your sweet potato crop will look really great in your garden while you're waiting for those tubers to form. In about 90 to 100 days, you'll be able to um, harvest sweet potatoes. So if you get your slips planted by the end of June, you can have fresh sweet, sweet potatoes in the fall. Last week's show was primarily about spring wildflowers like blue bonnets, but I didn't even mention the other predominant Texas wildflower that is blooming right now, orange paintbrush. Now, I love blue bonnets, but man, I just adore those orange paintbrushes. They are just so bright and flashy and eye-catching, and I'm, I'm like that with orange. I love the color orange, I really could be content with an entire garden of nothing but orange flowers. When it comes to spring wildflowers, I love the color combination of bright orange and bright blue. So blue bonnets and paintbrushes blooming at the same time is just awesome. I love it. I think it's wonderful. Not only is the paintbrush blue bonnet combo visually interesting, but it's also botanically interesting too. Um, I'm sure that you remember from school. Most all plants are self-sufficient. They use photosynthesis to make all the food they need. But 
paintbrush wildflowers are semi-parasitic plants. They only make a portion of their own food. Instead of being independent and creating, creating their own food, paintbrushes will spread their roots into the soil until they touch the roots of other plants like blue bonnets. Then the paintbrush roots will actually penetrate the roots of the host plant and they start siphon, siphoning off some of the fluid, food from the host. So they're kind of a jerk freeloader plant. It just shows up and then it takes nutrients from others and it doesn't really give anything back to the host. It really doesn't rob the other plants um, of too many nutrients, not enough to harm or kill them, but they, they're total freeloaders or slackers and they don't make their own food or at least not enough. So they, they take it from their host plants but they are really pretty, so it's got that going for it. Paintbrushes are members of the uh, Snapdragon family. The really colorful parts of the plant aren't the actual flowers. The bright orange parts are bracts, not flower petals. Bracts are leaf-like structures that surround the flowers. Paintbrush flowers are inconspicuous, um, they're really small and they're just surrounded by those orange bracts. They have white and pale green petals that um, are inside of those green bracts. Plants like paintbrushes, poinsettias, bougainvillea, they've all evolved to, and developed bracts as a way to attract pollinators. Now, if you want to add orange paintbrush to your yards. You're not going to find them um, for sale as plants in the nurseries, and that's because they don't tolerate being transplanted. If you are wanting to add paintbrushes to your landscape, you can try to plant them from seed. Everything that I read, though, it sounds like they're a little bit difficult to cultivate, and that really only 40% of the seeds actually germinate, but once they do get established, they will be a pretty spectacular addition to your landscape. You are listening to Plow and Hose on KBSR Black Sparrow Radio. If you are enjoying my show, I hope you'll go over to www.blacksparrowmusicparlor.com and check out the station and learn all about the great shows and music coming out of our station broadcasting from Taylor, Texas. While you are out on the internet, be sure to stop by the Plowin' Host Facebook page and like and share it with your gardening friends or head over to where you get your podcasts and subscribe to the Plowin' Host podcast. If you like the flexibility of being able to play pause and rewind my show whenever you want, download some episodes and be sure to leave a review. It's really quick. Just click on those stars. If you have the opportunity to leave a note, go ahead and type up something. This is going to help others find the show and let's people know that Plow and Hose is a pretty good show. If you've already left a review, thank you so much. I love reading those. Okay, let's get back to what's growing out in our backyards. My strawberries have been blooming and I've got a, quite a few green strawberries out there and I'm waiting for those to turn red. Strawberries don't continue to ripen after they are picked. 
They're not like tomatoes that you can pick when they're um, still kind of green and you can leave um, them on the counter to finish ripening. No, you can't do that with strawberries. You've got to let the strawberries get all the way red before you pick them. When it comes to homegrown strawberries, the challenge every year is letting them get fully ripe before the birds or the critters get them. I don't blame them. I mean, everybody loves strawberries from the garden. It's probably like the most favorite thing for kids to grow. It can be pretty freaking frustrating though because the birds and the critters love strawberries too. Birds are fairly easy to keep out. Just cover your plants with some bird netting. That's going to keep some distance between the berries and the birds. Lots of birds are also um, attracted to the color red. And if you like crafts, you can also paint rocks red and make them look a little bit like strawberries and place those in your strawberry bed. The idea is to place painted rocks in with your strawberry plants to trick the birds into pecking the rocks instead of your sweet strawberries. The birds will get fed up with the rocks and leave your strawberries alone. Now, earlier this week, one day, I noticed some ants out there on my strawberry plants and I thought it was like kind of weird because ants really aren't known to bother strawberries. So I got closer to them and I saw not only did I have ants, but I also had aphids. So I went and got my insecticidal soap and um, sprayed all the bugs to kill them. Now, I, I thought it was really unusual to have both ants and aphids, so it uh, got me curious. And I went inside and did a little bit of research. And you know what? It turns out that some ants have a symbiotic relationship with aphids. Aphids are sucking buds. Um, sucking bugs. They use their mouth parts to suck juices from the plants. Since they eat a lot, they poop a lot. The plant juices are really high in sugars, way more than the in insects can process. So what they don't use, they excrete out. And that sticky substance is called honeydew. So basically, honeydew is like bug poop or bug pee. I guess it's bug pee. Um, it's sticky, sweet bug pee, which is so gross. Um, well, the ants are attracted to the sugar in the aphid honeydew. They like it so much that the ants will actually protect the aphids from predators so they can have first dibs on their honeydew. But even more fascinating about this relationship is that ants will actually herd the aphids and get them to move to the juiciest and the most tender parts of the plants so the aphids can just go to town and feast on the plants because the ants know that the more plant juices and will make more honeydew and the ants will then like massage the aphids um, with their antenna and that encourage, encourages the aphids to secrete their honeydew and then the ants like immediately eat it. I mean, that's so bizarre and so gross, but it's really fascinating to me. 
anyway, um, you know, even though that is kind of interesting and cool, I really don't have time for all that. And I didn't plant strawberries for aphids or ants. So they all got spritz with insecticidal soap. And now I don't have a problem with ants or aphids right now. So that's pretty cool. Pill bugs or roly polies also love strawberries. And there is not many more things frustrating than waiting for a strawberry to ripen just perfectly. And you go out there and you pick it up and just to discover that the bottom side has been nibbled into by pill bugs. I mean, they really can't help it. They're just hungry little pill bugs. And strawberries are very delicious, but still, it's so annoying. Pill bugs normally eat decaying plant material, but for some reason, they can't resist beautiful red strawberries. And that's uh, just so damn annoying. Pill bugs like moist environments, so they're probably join, uh, probably drawn to the strawberries for the moisture, but then they stick around once they get a taste. I have found that if I keep the berries off the soil, the pill bugs can't get to them. When they start turning red, I'll just like lift up the fruits and put them in the leaves, just tuck them into the, um, into the leaves so they aren't touching the ground or the mulch. Try to remove any dead leaves since pill bugs are attracted to plant decay. Consuming decay is a good thing and pill bugs are like nature's little garbage disposal. So having pill bugs in your garden isn't necessarily a terrible thing. Um, at least I don't think so unless I start eating holes in my strawberries. If you find that you have this problem, you can set up pill bug traps. All you need to do is place some shallow dishes in your bed and fill them with beer. Try to place the dish into the ground so the lip is level with the ground. The pill bugs will be attracted to the beer and then they crawl in. I have no idea if they get drunk and drowned, but whatever actually happens, beer traps do work. And they also work really well on trapping snails and slugs too. Beer traps are super effective, but when you have to go empty your beer traps full of dead bugs, it's just super gross and disgusting. So there's your warning. Fortunately, you can also make traps out of fruit and raw potatoes. For a fruit trap, you can cut an orange in half and then place the cut side down on the soil and just leave it overnight. Pill bugs are very active at night and they will find the fruit. The next day, you can just lift up the fruit and take a shovel or a spoon and scoop up the pill bugs and just relocate them to your compost pile. To make a potato trap, just slice a raw potato in half and then scoop out the middle and make a little cavity like a boat and then place your little potato canoe um, cut side down. Give it a day or so and then check it and you should find lots of pill bugs. You can just relocate them to the compost pile. Just take your potato half out to your compost pile, shake off all the pill bugs and then you can reuse your potato put it right back in the garden and catch some more um, pill bugs. If you are really, really struggling with pill bugs in your strawberry patch, you can use diatomaceous, 
Earth or an organic product called Sluggo Plus. Diatomaceous, diatomaceous Earth is perfectly safe for humans, but when you use it in your garden, it's hell on soil critters. Diatomaceous Earth is a really fine powder that is made up of fossilized remains of aquatic or organisms called diatoms. The powder contains 80 to 90% silica, and when an insect crawls across it, the diatomaceous earth scratches up their bodies, and this causes them to dehydrate and dry out. Diatomaceous earth will take care of soft body critters like caterpillars and aphids, um, but also beetles, fleas, and roaches. Now, before you go and dust all your plants with diatomaceous earth, there is a downside to using it in your garden. Diatomaceous earth doesn't discriminate between the bad bugs and the good bugs that you do want, like ladybugs, lacewings, butterflies, and bees. So just be cautious and thoughtful when using diatomaceous earth. The kind of diatomaceous earth that they sell for swimming pool filters, it's not going to work. So get the food grade diatomaceous earth if you decide to try it. Sluggo Plus is an organic product that you can use if you don't want to use traps or diatomaceous earth to deal with your pill bug problem. Now there's original Sluggo and Sluggo Plus. For pill bugs, you want the Sluggo Plus because it contains iron phosphate and spinosad. Sluggo Plus is useful for addressing issues with earwigs, cutworms, pill bugs, snails, and of course, slugs. Spinosad is actually a pretty cool insecticide. If insecticides can be cool. Um, spinosad is a natural substance that's made from soil bacteria and it's toxic to insects. It affects their nervous systems whenever they eat or touch it. And within a couple of days, they will die. Spinosad breaks down in sunlight and it doesn't run off into the water table. Other microbes will help break it down. So to me, it's just a really great treatment for dealing with problem insects. I always prefer to do the least amount of harm in my garden and with pill bugs, there are very gentle ways to deal with them without reaching for expensive poison. Springtime is a great time for starting a compost pile. Compost piles are the ultimate recycling project because they turn waste into nutrients. And if you don't already have a compost pile, you should seriously consider starting one this spring. Compost piles keep plant and yard waste, kitchen scraps, leaves, grass clippings, and most paper products out of the landfill. Nature breaks down all these things in your compost pile and transforms it into a valuable soil amendment that feeds your plants. Even the most basic compost pile serves two functions. It keeps waste out of the landfill and recycles it into free plant food. Compost piles are so easy to do. Your pile can be fancy or as simple as you want it to be. You can find all kinds of plans on the internet on how to build 
a fancy multi-bin compost system. Or you can just find a spot in your yard and start a pile on the ground. You don't have to construct anything. As long as your pile is in contact with the ground, bins and piles work the same, and it doesn't matter how they look. Compost piles need both brown and green plant material to break down efficiently. Green plant materials are those things like grass clippings, kitchen scraps, old plants that you have pulled out from your garden, weeds. Green items are considered fresh and they still have moisture in them for the most part. Green compost items are high in nitrogen. Brown plant materials are those things that are dry, woody, and generally considered dead. Leaves, wood chips, newspaper, and cardboard are common brown items. Brown compost items are high in carbon. Ideally, you want your working compost pile to be two parts green and one part brown. This is a good basic ratio for having an active synergistic compost pile that breaks down all the large pieces of yard waste and kitchen scraps into a wonderful, rich, dark brown compost that your plants will love. An effective compost pile is always working. They don't go dormant and they don't take a break when the temperatures change in the winter or the summer. They slow down a little during the cold and the extra hot weather, but they don't stop working. The soil microbes and the critters and the worms and insects are still hard at work under your compost pile, just munching away on all that plant material and transforming it into really great compost. If you are starting a compost pile or you have an existing one that seems like it's kind of slow and not breaking down as fast as you would like it, then you might want to consider adding some horticultural molasses to your pile. Horticultural molasses is a type of sugar, carbohydrate. It provides food for the microbes living in the soil that help break down organic matter. Because it increases microbial activity, it's often used to rebuild soil that's been subjected to years of synthetic fertilizer. Horticultural molasses is available in dry and liquid forms. Dry molasses is actually dried organic carrier material like ground up grain hulls or soybean waste after um, the soybeans have been processed. And the dry version has been sprayed with liquid molasses to create an easy to spread product. Um, and it does tend to last longer than the liquid version. Horticultural molasses makes a really great compost accelerator. So for compost piles, use the liquid to help accelerate the decomposition of organic matter. The sugars in molasses is that it's going to stimulate the microbes and they will start processing all the green and brown plant material in your pile. Horticultural molasses is also a decent insect control product. 
You can spray it on your plants to deter chewing and sucking insects like aphids. All you gotta do is use one or two tablespoons in a gallon of water and spray it on your plants. You can use it um, like once a week during the growing season. It's also um, an ingredient in many fire ant mound drenches. Now, when the temperatures get up into the 90s, you should avoid using um, molasses. It's just too hot for your plants. And many plants start to slow down when it gets too hot. So it's not gonna do a whole lot of good when it gets that hot. Both wet and dry molasses are great products to keep around. Molasses is multi-purpose and it's so useful as a soil activator, compost accelerator, and also for insect control. Well, friends, thank you for joining me again today. I hope you guys are enjoying this beautiful Texas spring weather. Production assistance provided by KBSR, Black Sparrow Radio. Original music created by Alex Cuervo. Discover more of his music at alexcuervo.tv. If you love plants and gardening in Central Texas, be sure to click the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts and never miss seasonal information on Plow and Hose. Plow and Hose is written and recorded at my home in Taylor, Texas.